I'm sure that um, all of us know what it is like to be on the receiving end of a tongue lashing, whether that be uh, from a parent or a teacher, or it might be um, from a, a fellow motorist that um, we, have, we have annoyed. And as a former member of the teaching profession, I have to confess that I have issued quite a few tongue lashings of my own. Our tongues are often employed as the instrument of our anger. Of course, a tongue lashing may well be legitimate, uh, just exactly what is needed. But often, alas, it's not. Rather, it is just um, an unjustified outburst of our rage. And our tongues give vent not just to anger, but to all manner of sins of speech. Gossip, innuendo, lies, biting sarcasm, arrogant boasting, backbiting, swearing, blasphemy, exaggeration, flattery, slander, broken confidences. The list of such verbal sins is long. I loved what um, Sam Albury says. Uh, Albury remarks, the tongue is the one muscle in our bodies that we do not fail to exercise thoroughly. It gets a constant workout. And it's apparent um, from reading the, the letter of James that James was having to deal with situations where believers were guilty of verbally sinning. In chapter 1, um, we've already seen that he's commanded his readers to be slow to speak, verse 19. And he also cites lack of control of your tongue as evidence of what he calls worthless religion in verse 26. And in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, uh, which I hope to get to next week, he'll refer to fights and quarrels among you. But it is in chapter 3 that we have James's famous denunciation of the tongue. James's own tongue lashing, if you like. And it's chapter 3 then that's going to form uh, the basis uh, for this morning's study. So that's what we're going to read together. James chapter 3. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, 
They are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And I'm going to divide up the passage then that we've read, chapter 3, into into three sections. Uh, Verses 1 to 2, which I have called Teacher Beware. Verses 3 to 12, the terrible tongue. And then verses 13 to 18, a word to the wise. And from each section, Uh, will derive then one key lesson. So, section one, teacher beware. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. A uh, A bit of background here. The office of teacher in the early church was a very significant one. There were obviously the apostles, then there were prophets, and then there were teachers. And teachers had the crucial role of explaining the scriptures to people who, remember, by and large, couldn't themselves read. And bear in mind that teachers were treated with great reverence within Judaism. They were called rabbis. 
And a rabbi would typically be addressed as my great one. Jewish families would delight if one of their own children became a rabbi, for it would bring the family prestige and status. Indeed, a Jew's sense of duty to his rabbi was expected to exceed that to his parents. So we can understand how, coming from a largely Jewish background, there would not be there would be not a few in these new assemblies of Christians who might well covet the role of teacher. We also know that right from the get-go, false teachers emerged within the church. So James has got good reasons for calming the jets of those who want to assume this role of teacher. And he reminds them that teachers are going to face a higher bar of judgment. They claim to know more about God's ways and they tell others how to live to please him. Thus, if they get it wrong or if their walk doesn't live up to their talk, they're going to have to answer for that. You see, greater responsibility always brings with it greater accountability. In this, James is repeating what Jesus himself taught. In Mark 12, verse 40, for example, Jesus says that the teachers of the law who exploit their followers will receive the greater condemnation. And in the parable of the foolish manager, Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Luke 12, verse 48. In verse 2, James proceeds to warn that we are all fallible and all are capable of misusing our tongues. And it is only those who have mastered their tongues who can be confident of mastering the rest of their person. And so the key lesson that emerges from this opening section is, I think, the need for self-awareness. The need for self-awareness. And there are, in fact, really two aspects to this. First of all, we all need to acknowledge that because of our fallen nature, none of us possess perfect judgment. We will all get things wrong, or we all have the potential of getting things wrong. But secondly, it's important that we do recognize our particular limitations. The fact is that not everyone is gifted by God for a particular role. It is good to know what you can do and what you cannot do. Otherwise, we get square pegs in round holes. That is not a license for, for instance, um, refusing to ever take part in a church service. 
But those of us who do preach and teach God's word must not enter into that role frivolously or without examining our own lives to see whether we are practicing what we preach. Not perfectly, of course, we'll never do that, but in essence, and that applies you know, as much to the Sunday school teacher or the Bible class teacher. You know, it's not just about speaking from the platform. But the need for self-awareness. The second section then is the terrible tongue. What James has just said serves as an introduction to his, uh, to his warning regarding the dangers of the tongue. And he will now unpack this in the central section then of chapter 3. And I'm sure that you'll all agree with me that it's about time that we had a, a good subdivision. So there's a subdivision coming here. So part 2a, verses 3 to the first part of verse 5, the tongue's power, the tongue's power. Apparently, the tongue, in the literal sense of the small organ, a small organ, uh, apparently it comes to about half of 1% of your body weight. But such a small organ can exert great power. Actually, I really laughed to myself when I read that in one of the commentaries about this, the tongue being half of 1% of your body weight and about this small organ. Um, a number of years ago, I did um, a scripture union uh, boys camp one Halloween. And um, one, of the, one of the leaders, he was actually, uh, he was one of the, we, we would have staff and then we would have sick form leaders, you know, Christian guys who were leaders. And then the, the body of pupils were all like second form to fifth form. So this particular guy um, was a sick form leader. And uh, this guy is now um, and has been for many years uh, a Presbyterian minister. I'm not going to name him. This is being recorded. Um, but he's a Presbyterian. He is a Presbyterian minister and a fine guy. But his party piece that he performed for the entire camp one night was he would put his hands like this on his ears and he would start to pretend to twist his ears. And as he twisted his ears, he would extend his tongue like this. Well, I can honestly say I have never, ever seen a tongue as long as this guy's. It actually made me feel physically sick. Um, and even the mental image now, I sort of recoiling from, it was unbelievable. It was like a cow's tongue. It just came down so long. It was, oh, it was horrible. But that's completely by, by the way. Um, so put that image out of your mind and let's stick them with what the experts tell us about the small size and weight of this particular piece of the human anatomy. And James uses two metaphors to illustrate the power of the tongue. A bit that we put in a horse's mouth and a rudder 
in a ship. Both, of course, are very small, yet both can be used by the rider or by the pilot to steer the direction of a much, much larger object. Even in the face of the animal's wild nature or strong winds, respectively. Likewise, says James, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And apparently the meaning there is um, it, it, the tongue can rightfully claim to do big things. We might say that the tongue punches above its weight. So the tongue's power, it is a powerful instrument. Secondly, verses five to six, the tongue's destructiveness, its destructiveness. John Calvin described the tongue as a slender portion of flesh which contains the whole world of iniquity. And Warren Wearsby, who of course Jeff has been uh, referring to of late, Warren Wearsby entitles his chapter on James 3 as, and I love this, the world's smallest but largest troublemaker. James uses another metaphor to illustrate the tongue's destructive potential, that of a forest fire. Of course, in the hot climate of Palestine, bushes and scrub were dry tinder for a spark. Even we in this province can relate to this because during a heat wave, you remember what those were like? Or what a heat wave was? But during a heat wave, you remember we had cases of in Cave Hill and the Moor Mountains where like somebody has dropped a cigarette butt? And it's just led to a huge forest fire. The tongue is incendiary. Its effects are devastating. It corrupts the whole person and sets the course of his life on fire. Think of what Jesus said about what comes out of a mouth being that which defiles him. Matthew 15 verse 11. Sam Albury again writes, that the tongue is a vast ecosystem of sin with a capacity for evil like none other. And no wonder, for the tongue, says James, is set on fire by hell. And James uses the term here for hell, Gehenna. That was the rubbish dump in the valley of Hinnon in the suburbs of Jerusalem, which was always burning with the refuse of the city, and which, of course, became a symbol of the final judgment where Satan and his angels, alongside wicked men, would receive their eternal punishment. The uncontrolled tongue, says Kent Hughes, has a direct pipeline to hell. It is the devil's instrument. And then thirdly, verses 7 to 8, the tongue's unruliness. It's unruliness. The point of these two verses is that the tongue is untamable, untamable at least in our own strength. All categories of creatures man has learned to tame, 
but not so his speech. The tongue is a restless evil, says James. And James here employs the exact same term as he has used for a double-minded man in chapter 1, verse 8. The idea is of constant restlessness. And it's full of deadly poison, what Kent Hughes calls verbal cyanide. Um, Remember what King David wrote in Psalm 140, verse 3. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their words are full of lethal venom. And then fourthly, verses 9 to 12, the tongue's inconsistency. With our tongues, we praise God, the highest form of speech. And yet with our tongues, we curse men, the lowest form of speech. Men who bear the Imago Deo, the image of God, who have been made in God's likeness. My brothers, says James, this should not be. It is intrinsically wrong and it is contradictory. More metaphors are employed, this time of a geographical and horticultural nature. You cannot get fresh and salt water from the same source. A fig tree cannot bear olives. A grapevine cannot bear figs. To bless God one moment and curse his image bearers the next is to be guilty of what David Pawson calls schizophrenia of the tongue. It's the height, or perhaps better, the depth of inconsistency. And the takeaway lesson then from this second section on the terrible tongue is the need for self-control. We had the need for self-awareness, the need for self-control. As Christians, we must acknowledge how harmful our tongues can be. All of this, and all of us in this room, I am sure, are familiar with the children's rhyme: "Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me." If only that were so. As Douglas Moo comments, and I did laugh at that, given my earlier reference to the, the cow's tongue. Douglas Moo, there's one for John Green. Um, John, it's not John Green, Douglas Moo comments, the wounds caused by sticks and stones heal. The wounds caused by words sometimes never heal. With our speech, we can be guilty of spiritual arson, which results in fallouts, It results in family feuds, and yes, it results in church splits. We must learn to be guarded in what we say. Not that James would have us become like Trappist monks, but self-control over our tongues is a measure of our spiritual maturity. And yes, of course, people have different temperaments. 
And yes, the fact that someone remains silent doesn't necessarily mean that they're not harboring evil thoughts in their heart. But thinking before you speak is a great attribute. The tongue is a firework waiting to be lit. So we need the help of God's Spirit to learn how to safely use it. And then section three, a word to the wise. And again, I'm going to have another subdivision here. First of all, verses 13 to 14, James's challenge to those who purport to be wise. Wisdom is a major theme throughout James's letter. Those who claim to be wise, and very possibly James has in mind again those that he started the chapter with, those who are wanting this role of teacher within the church. They are to show it, they are to show wisdom by the life they live, by good deeds. And here we're back with another of James's pet themes, namely faith that is backed up by good works. For James, actions speak louder than words. And also for James, motive is crucial. If you're motivated by bitter envy and selfish ambition, if that's why you want the position of teacher, then according to James, you've really nothing to say. For true wisdom comes from a humble heart. And then B, verses 15 to 16, false wisdom. In this and the following section, James will elaborate on two types of wisdom, false versus true wisdom. And in each case, he's going to deal with the source of that wisdom, the characteristics of that wisdom, and the results of that wisdom. Regarding the source of false wisdom, he, James says, it is not from above, it's from the earth. It's what the apostle Paul calls the wisdom of the world, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19. Indeed, it's really of the devil himself, the devil being the father of lies, John 8, verse 44. And as to its characteristics, James repeats that it's associated with envy and selfish ambition. Envy has been defined as zeal that has gone wrong. Selfish ambition is that spirit that wants to elevate yourself no matter what the consequences. And the results of this worldly wisdom are, according to James, disorder and every evil practice. Basically, chaos and immorality. And then... Finally, see verses 17 to 18, true wisdom. The origin of true wisdom is God himself. This is wisdom that we're told comes down from heaven. And James then unpacks the characteristics of true wisdom. First, it's pure. 
That is, it's uncontaminated by sin or evil. Secondly, it is peace-loving, the opposite of the spirit that causes disputes and factions. Third, it is considerate or gentle. That is, it's willing to yield to others. Similarly, it's submissive. That is, it's persuadable or open to reason. Fifthly, it's full of mercy and good fruit, the sort of attitude that displays tangible love for your neighbor. Sixthly, it's impartial. That is, it doesn't exhibit favoritism, another pet theme of James. And seventh, it's sincere. It is without show or pretense. James would not have thought much of Mark Twain's definition of sincerity or his assessment of sincerity. Mark Twain famously said, if you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. James concludes with the result of true wisdom, a harvest of righteousness, a real contrast to the chaos and immorality that results from false wisdom. Peace, goodness, right living, these are the things that true wisdom leads to. And you may well observe an overlap here between um, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 5 and what James says here of wisdom. As Douglas Moo comments, What Paul says the Spirit produces, James says wisdom, true wisdom, produces. And that takes us to our third and final lesson for today. So we had the need for self-awareness. What was the second one? The need for (laughs) self-control. And then this one, the need for self-denial, self-denial. James is exhorting those who would be wise to demonstrate a spirit of meekness and peaceableness, exactly the sort of qualities associated with Jesus, who famously described himself as meek and lowly of heart, Matthew 11, verse 29, and who pronounced a blessing upon both the meek, Matthew 5 and 5, and the peacemakers, Matthew 5 and 9. And of course, James himself proved to be a peacemaker. Do you remember at the Council of Jerusalem where there was this potentially fatal divide that was emerging amongst early Christians between those of a Jewish background and those of a Gentile background. And there was the whole issue, you know, about what what the Gentiles have to do. Do they have to become like, almost like Jews and food laws and circumcision and all the rest of it? It was James who made the crucial ruling which brought peace to the early church. And how we need such a spirit of meekness and peaceableness today for the sake of unity, precious unity. We need to be willing 
to not always insist on getting our own way. And I am not for one minute suggesting that that means that we sacrifice or go soft on the essentials of our faith. It is not peace at any price. But on non-essential things, we need to exhibit wisdom from above by being gentle, submissive to one another, and open to reason. We need to act out of humility, not selfish ambition or envy. And one of the prized features of Castlereagh Fellowship is its unity. It's something that we have been blessed with from day one, and it has been maintained. And it is so vital that we seek, you know, unity doesn't happen automatically. And we're told in the scriptures, Paul exhorts us, you know, to, to strive to keep your unity. You know, the devil and fallen human nature will do its level best, do their level best to undermine unity. So it's something that has to be worked at. So let's make sure that we maintain this unity as we go forward with all the challenges, stresses and strains of community life. Let's face it, any community is going to have its issues. You know, it's just, it is a fact of life. And the fact that we're Christians, we've still got our old natures and we're still different. So there will be differences that will emerge and it's how we handle those differences that is so important. So let's heed James's word to the wise. So the need for self-awareness, know your own fallen nature, know what you can and can't do. The need for self-control, for exercising control, for thinking before you speak as much as you can. And the need for self-denial, not always elevating yourself, not always insisting on having your own way. These are the three crucial lessons from James's tongue lashing to his original readers and by extension to Castlereagh Fellowship. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.